Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is the 16th of the 8th. I hope you've been well since last we spoke. I assure you that this episode there will be no mention of the sexual habits of the board of the ICCL. Michael, how have you been? Better now that I've been reassured that there will be none of that. People have been down in the dumps, Michael, lately. It's been a hard time for everyone, particularly those in certain businesses. Yes. I mean, business has been driven down, and we're all suffering. And I'm talking particularly about our friends in the legal business. Ah, ah, yes, true, true, true. They've had a terrible time of this. I mean, people don't realise, but a lot of solicitors and a lot of younger barristers are very... They're not as well paid as people think. There's a lot more work involved. Well, listen, I can tell you... If you if you, you ever find yourself in court and you, 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 you've brought yourself some ex, rather elderly but experienced top-notch solicitor, you're going, you, and you're, it's a simple job, you're better off, don't, don't. You'll pick, up, you'll pick up a young barrister in the court for the price of a large breakfast. They're out there, they're in their throats. And at the moment, I was talking to a solicitor friend of mine recently who was saying that, that say for example she works in the area of litigation and she said you know it's just business has fallen off a cliff nobody's suing anybody there no there's no litigation there's uh, people stopped people have just even stopped committing crimes at the level of defense and prosecu- prosecution work nobody's conveying things people are, people aren't even making wills although you would have thought that it was a will making time was very, very quiet for our, our friends in the legal profession. Very, very hard. And we're a bit past the, the sell-by date on this. This is actually something that happened a while ago. But I think we haven't talked about it from this perspective. So you've got these, these legal personnel on the verge of starving in the street, Michael. And suddenly, from their cardboard on the side of the street, they look up and the government has given them a way to get back on their feet. A shining city on the hill okay. made of cash. I'd pray to El Gary God enlighten me. What particular, what hill is this hill? Well, I mean, first of all, I have to say that we suggested that this, this shining city existed before. But I think after going and talking to some friends in the legal person, uh, in the legal world, to see if they also thought this shining city of money existed, we can now confirm it does exist, and by God, they expect it to be made of money. It is the projected grades for the leaving. Oh set. yes, yeah, yes, indeed. I was I was talking to an academic lawyer there in the last couple of days, and I just brought the subject up. I said, "Am, am I wrong, or can I, in the distance here?" The sound of quills, lawyers' quills and pens being sharpened in preparation for the publication of the results. And his response was a hollow laugh and said, oh no, the boys are very excited about it. And I think what's what's brought it into the news at the moment and what's really heightened expectations after people had kind of forgotten about it was because unless you're on the inside, and I can tell you people are on the inside, are very aware of it. I mean, the only people on the inside who are happy are the state examination board. Who have basically been blockaded out completely. The depart- yeah, the department has taken it all off them, which for those who might think that the state depart- examination board would be, like, they would be, they would be terribly put out at being stopped from handling the examinations. To put this in perspective... This is basically like someone walking up to you with a grenade or possibly a series of grenades, pulling the pin out, 
looking at you for a second and going, actually, no, wait, I'll take those, you hold yeah, the pin. Yeah, you keep the pin. And then wandering off into the distance <laughs> at such a speed, the explosion probably won't touch you at all. That is the state examinations. Oh, they are very, very happy the, indeed. There's a sort of, oh, thank God. Because there are people within the department for whom this is Christmas. This, oh, is, this is the dream. This is Russia Total this... control of children's... Uh, grades and they're able to adjust based on gender and sex and where the children went and they can totally control the curve and distribution of those grades without any of that niggling little problems like how good the children actually do or i should say michael considering we're talking about the subject of education how well the children actually do because good is what superman does so you may or may not have seen Gary, I don't know if you were following it. There was a bit of a hoo-ha and a brouhaha in Scotland because they had they're they were doing this uh, predicted grades thing and they had, like us, an algorithm. Now there's nothing like an algorithm, Gary. So what the algorithm ended up doing was they ended up lowering the results from I think what had been the predictive grades possibly provided by the teachers or something. So anyway, so you had these wonderful anomalies coming out because they were adjusting for all sorts of different kinds of things. I suppose with gender, location, school, race, whatever. So there was one example of a student who had been given predicted results. Now, remember, it's a, it's a very different system over there that you can actually apply and get a, a conditional offer of a place in university on the basis of your predicted results. So, there, I think her predicted results were three A stars, we'll say. In her mock exams, she'd achieved two A stars and an A. However, the results she got were two Bs and a C. Now, two Bs and a C ain't going to get, ain't going to get you... A scholarship to Cambridge. What happened? Well, what appears to have happened is the school she went to is what something like a second, what they call a secondary modern or something like that. Anyway, it's not Eton or Harrow or one of the one of the great schools. And because of that, they jigged the numbers down so everybody was confident in the school that this student was going to uh, achieve way way above the normal level of achievement within the school. But because of the algorithm, Gary, the algorithm said, no, 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 we can't have to take an account. And that's what's going to happen. So it also, the problem is history. Every year is different. You talk to any teacher. I was talking to a teacher. Just here, I know anecdotes, anecdotes and all that, but I think this is an interesting one. Um, One teacher was talking about... uh, a class where she uh, she had, I think, 12 students. And of the 12 students, 11 got A's, <clears throat> A1s or A2s or something like that. And then the, the other student in the class got a B. Now, she said on the basis of the, ama- the available information for predictive grades or whatever, and talking to people, Chances that all of those 12, that 11 of those 12 students would have got an A on predictive grading was just, just wouldn't have happened. Just no way in the world would that have been produced. Should the class the following year, completely different. Completely different levels of ability. You, the classes go up and down. Different. Sometimes 
you get the gift of students. Sometimes the gift of students go off and do a different subject or they follow a different teacher or whatever it is. So the history is not within the narrow confines of a good predictor. But also, apparently, but we don't know quite how, if you go to a girls' school, I mean, how does that work, Gary? If you're going to an all-girls school, does that mean that your predicted grade would be brought down because you're being corrected for privilege or advantage because you're going to a voluntary school, which is also an all-girls school, and girls do better on average than boys? And that's Is that a bad thing or a good thing? I can't remember. Well, you know, Michael, I, I have a feeling that these are going to be questions before Irish courts very soon. We well, a, a question, I think, which is before the courts as we speak, there is a lady gone to, in I think, in Galway, Galway or Mayo, who has homeschooled all of her children. And up to now, her children, a number of whom have done the Leaving Cert, have done extremely well and have got very good results and have gone on to do very high point courses across the gap. Her child, or child or children, will not get any grade this year, Gary, because a parent cannot give an assessment. Oh, yes, yes, I saw this case. And this is this lady is not going to be alone. I mean, there are other children in the country that are getting, that are being homeschooled. But then you have the example of then other children, gifted children who are doing maybe two or three subjects. Uh, one teacher pointed out to me that if you're talking about the children f- whose parents are from Eastern Europe, many of them do one or two languages say they might do polish and russian because there may be polish and russian in the, in in the fact but they'll do them by themselves they won't be able to get a grade if you're one of those kids that does extra subjects by themselves anyway like say you do ex- you do an extra one and say you do maths physics you do ag science or something like that if you do it by yourself no grade however if you got a two-hour grind back in february from a teacher you can get a predictive grade which doesn't really seem to cut it, I don't think, at the level of basic fairness. No, I that's I might know. I'm. It's been a while since I've done any any study in law, Michael. But I seem to remember that the Irish Constitution, I believe Article Forty Two, has some things to say about. Parents and education. Oh right, yeah. That the parents are the primary educators of their children. Yeah, things like that, and that I believe it's Article Forty Two Two says parents shall be free to provide this education in their homes, or in private schools, or in schools recognised or established by the state. Uh huh. So, if parents have a constitutional right to educate their children in their homes. And you can't get a grade if you've homeschooled your uh, child. God, that says a fascinating constitutional law question there, Michael. Because what you're effectively doing is saying you could keep them at home, but effectively you're not going to be. We're not going to recognise the fact that you're educating these children at all. And then, Michael, what was it? It's section forty-two, three, yeah, three, one. The state shall not oblige parents, in violation of their conscience and lawful preference, to send their children to schools established by the state, or to any particular type of school designated by the state. Yes, a very fine, a very fine piece of law, by the way. I'm a big fan. 
But if you can't get grades, if you're... Mm, that would again seem... It, that would seem constitutionally, maybe not problematic, Michael, uh, well, but questionable. What you're doing, you're, you're effectively saying to them that, again, in, in theory you can educate them, but accept the fact you, you will not be sending them to third level. Anything that requires a grade will be excluded from those children. And that there's the, the, the practical issues. For example, you have a number of schools here which are what some people call grind schools or prep schools, whatever you want to, schools that are designed for people maybe going back and repeating or whatever, but or, or just simply feel that they, they are only, they're, they're not interested in PE and civics. They only want people who will prepare them for the exam. They're not interested in the, the wider, rounder issues around education. No, we no need to name these schools. We know what, what they are and that's good luck to them. But one of the issues is one is that in the, the algorithm apparently is going to have to take into account the school, right? The school that you, you went to. But many people who attend these schools don't take the exam there. They take the exam in other schools. Because if you're, you're attending a, one of these schools, say, in Dublin or in, or in Galway or Sligo, but you live in Tipperary or Wexford, it makes it's far easier, far handier. In fact, it makes far more sense for you. To take the to to see if you can get a local school to accept you, to to sit the exam th- there so you don't appear as part of the numbers for them. Also, and I'm not suggesting for a minute that any of these fee-paying private schools w- would be dishonest, but you're putting rather a heavy load onto the predictive grades that teachers are going to give when these schools exist purely on the basis of their capacity to provide lots and lots of points for the children that go there. That's, uh, I think that's rather too much pressure to give to those institutions. But no, I, I think we've got to accept that in, in a time when businesses need state support, but it can be awkward to get that by, something like this is, is a real helping hand to the legal profession. And I think we've got to recognise the government's support for them as an important part of our economy. Well, there is also a certain amount of support out there for the notion that we should just let everybody do whatever course they want in university anyway. To be honest, I don't know why I said to be honest because this is true and it's not my opinion. But traditionally, when you go, when you look back at particularly English education, and you look back at how they used to do things at Oxford and Cambridge, that is how it was done. You took an exam to get into the school, and then when you were in the school, you could do whatever you want. I can't speak for what the situation is right now, but I know that certainly up until the 90s in Italy, pretty well everything was done on the basis of what they called open numbers. So if you wanted to go to the Politecnico of Milan, right? which is a very, very fine university with an international reputation for architecture and engineering, that kind of stuff. You could go there and you could basically sign up for whatever course you wanted. Massive, massive classes. Most people don't bother going to their classes. They just take the, they get the notes from somewhere else and then turn up for the exams. Now, it's based on a system where you can basically take, you take as long as you like. If you can get your, your degree done in five years, fine. But very often people take six and seven years and maybe more to get their degree. And 
medicine, for example, medicine, I think in some of the universities it became what they call a numerous clauses, which was a close, I think, I made closed numbers or fixed numbers. But I remember saying to somebody, well, isn't that an odd system? You know, in, in Ireland, it's all, you, to get to study medicine, you have to get lots of points, you have to be very bright. And they said, well, you know, they have exams here, the same as they have everywhere else. Then they're, you, you pass your exams, you get your degree, and then there are professional exams. You can't just turn up and practice as a doctor. You have to pass your exams. And if you've passed your exams, surely that's the important bit. It's not the important bit is what, what results you got in an exam in school when you were 17. It's whether or not you've passed your... And if you're, you've passed your professional exams and you've, you have met the requirements demanded of you by the, local, by the, by the, uh, the professional bodies initially, which have perfectly high standards, very good medicine initially, it's a very high standard. Why not? I think there is something to that. Here it's run a little bit more like a cartel in, in the professions. The, the Historically, the professions have, have had the right to limit the numbers of people who would study for those professions, like law, uh, barristers, solicitors, dentists, doctors, whatever. And by limiting the number of people who could graduate, then you're limiting the number of people available in the marketplace. Now, if that's as true as it was, I don't know. Certainly not not anything like what it used to be in barristers. King's Inns, I think, were basically told, lads, either free it up or we're coming in and we're taking over. And they freed it up very considerably. But there is something to be said. Now, of course, we can't we can't prove that. No, no, no. And we've got to we've got to yeah, be very careful about statements we make about King's Inns. <laughs> because they're not very busy. They're not very busy, and well, if you, they know a lot of barristers. They know a lot of barristers. I could, I, I, I remember. I put it this way: I've known a lot of people who got into King's Inns over the last fifteen or twenty years, and I, I also, and I remember meeting a, a friend of mine who had applied. She had a two-one high, bare two, almost a first two-one from Trinity in whatever. She had a, a first class honours masters in international relations from the University of Limerick she applied to King's Inns to, uh, to study for the bar and she didn't get an interview so I'm going on the basis of my experience that there has been some easing up of the requirements in King's Inns they might even let women in I, I, well possibly I mean since the I think the president of the Supreme Court is a woman. Is the president of the Supreme Court a woman now? Who knows in this topsy-turvy in this world, topsy-turvy world. But yes, we are facing a situation in a, few, in a few weeks' time. Now, it's also a fact. I was. The results should have been out before, some, or I think by now anyway. But they have been pushed back and pushed back. And talking to somebody in the educational world, they, they say, well, ah, well, the algorithm has, produ- has proved to be more difficult in its application and full understanding that there have been some internal incoherences and contradictions that have had to be worked out. Now, Gary, all of this may simply be bad talk and the thing may be working beautifully. I do love the idea of uh, someone in the Department of Education standing at the end of a very long machine as if it was the Simpsons and saying, finally, our results and this massive machine chugging away and producing a single piece of paper 
which a civil servant will hold up, look at for a second, and just go, what the fuck is a null value? <laughs> what if everybody gets the same result? Everybody just gets 42. <laughs> there is actually something. we, we uh, On American news, actually, Michael, there has been some deeply disturbing American news. Do you remember before we we've talked about systemic racism? Yes, before yes, on this yes, podcast, yes, bad. generally in more serious of a tone than most of the allegations of what is systemic racism deserve. But I believe we've said before that there is one area in which it is obvious that there is systemic racism in America, and it's not the police. Oh no, it's the universities, the universities absolutely, and it's in the favor of Black Americans, but against Asian Americans. And the Justice Department, Michael, of America has finished a two-year investigation into Yale's undergraduate admissions. Yeah. And they have said that, um, yeah, <laughs> Yale, um, now this looked primarily at Yale, uh, but other universities across America are doing this. It's, it's exceptionally common. Everyone knows they're doing it. It's just no one has been able to prove they're doing it it's the one area where the left doesn't accept disparate impact as proof of discrimination because there are way less asians getting into the schools than they should be by the grades they're getting but the department uh explicitly says that yale rejects scores of asian americans and white applicants each year based on their race whom it would otherwise admit asian americans so they said if you take Asian American white students, those students only have one tenth to one fourth of the likelihood of admission as an African American applicant with comparable academic credentials. Right. And that the university is explicitly and clearly racially balancing its classes. Well, if you remember, there was a referendum. Well, remember, why should you? But there was a, there was a referendum anyway in California some years ago, which was a proposition, something or other, which was specifically make, to make it illegal to use race as a deciding issue in the, in the allocation of places in universities in California, Right. Now, as we speak, uh, I think the University of San Francisco has come out and said it doesn't care what the law says. It's going to go its own way. It's going to start re-evaluating its system, its, 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 its system of uh, uh, evaluation for students. But just, just, Gary, just want, briefly, I just want to give you a couple of numbers here to what happens when you have a referendum, when you have a law which stops you discriminating on the basis of race. The California Interest Institute of Technology in Pasadena, just Caltech, right? Very highly regarded. Very highly regarded university. The uh, has thirty nine thirty nine point nine percent of its students are Asian. The University of California, San Diego, in La Jolla, has thirty seven percent Asian pop, uh, student population. The University of Pacific in Stockton, California, is thirty six percent. University of California, Irvine, 35%. And the University of California, Berkeley, also very highly regarded university, 35%. Now, 
Now, I suspect that if you looked at the numbers in Harvard, Yale, Princeton, etc., these are not the percentages you will see. I mean, do you remember the explanation that Harvard gave when when they said that they were going to that they were the numbers? Okay, they may look odd, but that's because Harvard is using a system which is so sophisticated that it's you just can't explain it to people. Yeah, I I I do remember. I can't remember the exact wording of their of their reason, but I remember getting to the end of it and just coming away with the impression that Harvard seems to think that Asian Americans don't really do anything interesting. Yeah, they basically... Or have any personalities. But that was the thing, wasn't it? Because they said personality was key. And they discovered that apparently Asian Americans just didn't have enough personality. I mean, it is, it is important to point out that in America... Uh, affirmative action, which is racism. I mean, it's an explicitly racial program. And I don't know why people... I will actually know. I know exactly why people don't want to call it a racist program. Because if it's a racist program, then people have to accept that sometimes racism is appropriate or even good. So they're not going to do that. I, I don't think it should exist, by the way. Because this podcast, unlike the American left, is not racist. But it is perfectly legal. Uh, affirmative action is perfectly legal. It's con- The Supreme Court has said it's constitutional and it's set out guidelines for how it can be done and saying that it has to be done in such a way to promote diversity. Now, whether or not the current Supreme Court would find that is a whole different affair, and this is why this is being talked about now, because a couple of Asian American groups have made complaints. And yeah. they want, well, which kind of understandably. And now the left is saying that this is just conservative groups pushing forward Asian Americans to push down black people. which And the New York Times headline on this, Michael, the New York Times headline went, again, the Justice Department of America said that Yale was discriminating against Asian and white students. Said their headline was Justice Department says Yale discriminates. Here's what students think. The Trump administration's charge that the university discriminates against Asian American applicants was disputed by many Asian American students and others. And then there's a long piece in which students do not dispute the fact that this college is discriminating against Asian Americans. They just say it's acceptable. You know, <clears throat> this is the United States. Different. They have the right to organise themselves across whatever principles they want. That's their business. And if they want to do this, I suppose, my attitude, well, you know, fire ahead. What I think is upsetting at a human level, if you like, about this is that there have been fairly significant studies done in the last number of years. I mean, going back a long way, I mean, Thomas Sowell did work on this a long time ago. but On mismatch theory, I assume you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, but the, the mismatch theory is particularly associated with the... Uh, uh, a professor, I think, a law professor in California called Sanders. And I, I brought this up in the conversation that I had recently with Professor Glenn Lowry, the economist from Brown University. And he went through it. Now, Glenn has two particular problems. One, he finds affirmative action in this way to be morally offensive. He says it's a way of saying to black America, you can't do it by yourselves. You are incapable of catching up. You're incapable, given the, the right tools and the right opportunities, of achieving. So we are going to give this to you. And he said it's, it's a way of, 
upper middle class white people institutionalizing difference and it's it's i think he or, or mark quarter quotes at some stage talking about this that the the, the line of bush where he says it's the, the softer what is it the soft the soft racism of lower expectations but there's a really negative practical outcome i mean i think that's unfair michael there's nothing soft about that racism. Well, possibly not but what it does do it means that you get students who are mismatched regarding their ability and the university they end up in. And he said, what is really interesting is it is, is that at the very, very top, Harvard, they do okay. But as you go down the system, as you go down from Harvard through Yale and Princeton and Columbia and Berkeley and Caltech and MIT and Duke or whatever, all, all the way down, the demand for students of colour is is there so the competition exists and you get the, the mismatch becomes bigger and bigger and you get people going into places you know it's like some if I, I was a bright bright kid enough but if i had gone if i'd ended up in one of these in one of these places through some accident of scholarship or affirmative action i would not have had the same level of preparation as these kids would have had going through like the super selective public schools in New York or going to Chogger Andover or whatever. And if you are in the bottom 10% of your class, that is one of the strongest predictors that you will either fail or drop out. And these students, say, going to Brown or to Princeton and not completing their degree, if you'd gone down to another college, maybe a really good college, say like Georgetown or something, right? where they would actually not have been mismatched. They would have actually done well, got a degree, come out and been part of a positive, virtuous cycle of breaking out, of breaking the chain of deprivation. But instead, you're condemning children, boys and girls, young adults, who have ability, who have gifts. You're putting them in the wrong place. And you're actually creating the circumstances for them rather than circumstances for them to succeed and thrive, for them to fail. And I think that's a horrible thing to do just because you want to feel good about yourself morally. But it's their own business. It is. And for their part, Yale have said that they totally reject it. They abide by all current federal uh, law and local law. And uh, yeah, no one is going to talk about this. Well, they're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it in the way the New York Times is talking about it. Uh, as the oldest tactic in the book to pit minority groups against each other. Mike. Yeah, that's what they're doing. That's what they, they, they... I would actually be quite sad to see it go. Not on a human level, because obviously for all people who complain about tests and they complain about the idea of, of children having to, you know, having their future decided on the outcome of tests... There is a great deal of research on tests as a very effective tool against discrimination. Because when it's when it's subjective, it's very easy to find reasons why those minority students aren't a good fit. But when it's just numbers, when it's just you scored this amount of points, well, you can do it, you can underfund schools, you can do things like that. But there have been many instances of very highly performing schools on very small budgets in very difficult areas. Um, like Catherine Burblesing, who we talked to recently. Uh, there's, it's a brilliant example. What Catherine Burblesing is doing in that school in, 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 in London 
is she's produced she's giving those children the opportunity to achieve yeah and with with a objective testing metric and it's not a perfect system but with an objective testing metric it doesn't matter if the child is black or gay or disabled or has any difference the numbers are the numbers and if you score well well then you have your choices open to you but this is this is just a a, a part of a wider trend i mean not that this is a a great issue is uh, for, for the world at large but Back in the 70s, I think it was the 70s anyway, as a result of the observation that the great symphony orchestras in the United States tended to be pretty male and pretty white, against quite a bit of uh, pushback, they introduced what they called blind auditions. Yes, they even had people remove their shoes because you can tell the... They, they thought that people might be able to tell the difference between a high heel and a dress shoe. And that might subconsciously bias them. Well, what was the result of blind auditions? It Well, one thing that certainly far more women got positions in, in, the, in symphony orchestras across the United States. And many of those uh, actually came from racial minorities, particularly from the uh, uh, children of people whose heritage would be in East Asia. So it was regarded as a success. Now we have pressure to abandon the notion of the blind audition because it is now perceived in it, in and of itself as being structurally racist. Because simply being the person who is perceived as being the most competent musician is no longer enough. Because it has not produced orchestras whose compositions perfectly match the demographic distribution of the United States. Now, as Thomas Sowell would say, why anybody would expect that to be the case is a baffling notion. Different cultures value different things. I would imagine that if you did a test, blind audition, with or without, I don't know, but I speculate, of the very finest, the very top level uh, blues or jazz combos in the United States, you would find a disproportionate representation of people who are of African-American musicians. Because that is very much part that I mean, African Americans have dominated at the top end of that of that musical uh, genre throughout the twentieth century, and I don't see any. I don't haven't heard that there's been a mass change recently. But maybe there has. Different cultures. I I imagine if you're looking at the children who do best at jigs and reels and uh, river dance probably you're going to find a higher proportion of irish american children who are doing well in that area in the united states is that indication of some kind of deep-seated racism within the music i don't maybe or is maybe that that particular cultural group values that expression and spends more time and more money and in greater and disproportionate numbers than other groups do but hey ho so Italy, Michael. Italy. Holidays to Italy. Very expensive these days. Do you know, I would have said as a principle, you know, an axiom. I can't remember. Is it, there's, is it, there's an episode in The Simpsons uh, where Homer is... Do you remember the, he gets a job with a guy who 
who runs a, 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 some kind of a nuclear plant, turns out he wants to take over the world. Anyway, I, one of the questions he asks, I think it's this episode anyway, he asks Homer, if, you, if you're going to blow up, if you, if, you had to, if you had to choose between blowing up Italy or France, which would you? And Homer says, France. And the guy laughs and says, yeah, no one ever says Italy. I would have thought that was axiomatic that going on a holiday in Italy is always a good idea. However, if you're the president, if you're the if you're the chair of Board Fulcher at the moment, it turns out it's a very bad idea. And you may in fact have to resign. Well, in fact, you 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 well, if you are the 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 previous incumbent, you did in fact have to resign. I don't know. I can I know why people might be annoyed about this. I I can absolutely understand that but this is simply my my take is what he did he went on holiday to a country we have green list right and contrary to what uh, people are saying the government's travel advice as far as i understand it is that it's perfectly fine to go to italy Right, and certainly, if you're looking at the numbers, as far as I can see, if you, I don't know where the man went, but say if the man went to Sicily, or Sardinia, or to Basilicata, he would be going to areas where, at the level of in the possibility of being infected with COVID, far safer than going to place certain places uh, at the same time in Ireland. But they're saying, yeah, but. Policymakers, you know, this the, the government has a policy that you shouldn't be going abroad. Yeah, but he's not a policymaker. He's a civil servant who's been given a job to do. Well, he, well, yeah, I mean, he's not really, because I don't think this is even a full-time job. On the basis of the, the money that I saw, anyway. I don't know. Does the man not have a right to a private life? Just it, oh, yes. it, he was he was getting twenty one thousand a year on the board, which makes this an exceptionally expensive holiday. Like, yeah, and I can understand why it annoys people. To be honest, I just think about the shit that's happened in this country, Michael. Even over the last government's tenure, I know. I and know. not only did no one resign, I know the idea that anyone would have to resign was laughable. It wasn't even floated by the media. It was simply understood that resignations are not a thing that happens in Irish politics. So the fact of someone just went, you know what, I I can see why you thought that would look bad, I'll resign. It's just kind of, it's not even, it's not good or bad. It's just, it's on a pedestal floating there as I look at it and go, what is this? This is a country where I was told on Twitter, there was a photograph and everything, Simon Harris was walking down the street and a man came along on a bicycle and told him he was the best minister for health the country had ever had. I mean, I mean, before COVID, I think the general public perception was worst. Worst? Worst. 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 Yeah, I got it right the first time. Have we just decided we've, we're sick and tired of talking about the children's hospital? That's not news anymore. The money, ah, sure, you know. Michael, people don't, the general public, and pretty much everyone, doesn't know things. They get the general tone of things, and they believe things. They don't know things. So if everyone is saying Simon Harris is the best minister ever, and look at all these great things he did, 
the average person does not have the interest in politics to go, hold on a second. Yeah. That's not... Hold on, Agar. That's not right. It is, it is my strong sense of talking at least to a large number of people on this subject that I've yet to meet the person who said, do you know what? Put the children's hospital in James's was a great idea. That Blanchardstown thing was never going to run. So how would you have a thing there on land which was going to be donated by by a developer which was just off the motorway where you had easy access where you room where you had room to expand where you could actually put in a helicopter pad that wasn't in danger of flying into the high high te- high power high tension power lines and could take the largest helicopters available and could take to the us. largest helicopters available to us and wasn't in the heart of the city and so on and so forth, and wasn't going to end up costing us two billion, two and a half billion, three billion. Do I hear two? Do I three? Do three point one? Do I hear three point two? We may, in fact. I mean, it was the last time I checked. It was the, it was within the top ten most expensive structures ever built by humanity <laughs> over the course of human history. Uh, there was a thing I did with Gripped ages ago, uh, where we worked out, we found stuff that costed like the hanging gardens of babylon and we measured everything in children's hospitals and it turns out like one a lot of that stuff surprisingly cheap when adjusted for inflation uh and two yeah we should have just had like three great pyramids instead i mean it wouldn't have cured children but they'd probably have been built by now Probably. And, you know, I mean, I've heard people say, oh, well, you know, these things always go overboard and that's, they're expensive and you can't plan for them. But, you know, we had, it's not even that big a hospital. Like the Children's Hospital in Lisbon. Now, I'm rooting around in my memory here because it's a while since we talked about this, since I looked at the numbers. But the Children's Hospital in Lisbon, to my memory, is bigger and considerably cheaper than this. Unless the Portuguese are, of course, working on some kind of third world hospital scenarios and we're zooming into the 22nd century uh, I, I don't know but yes Simon Harris did not have to resign in fact Simon Harris is there and still he's in the cabinet isn't he yeah he is I mean, cervical check we had I mean the children's hospital yeah that's I mean there's going over budget and then there's taking the yeah there's just taking the yeah uh, we had those deaths in nursing homes at the start of COVID-19 when the Nursing Home Federation was desperately trying to say, God, we'd really like to meet Minister Simon Harris because we don't think this is going very well. And what, it took them a month to meet with them. I mean, there's lots. And then there's, there's, we, it's, I mean, there's no point going through. No, We've no, talked no, no. a lot about Simon Harris. I, I wonder if this, if this poor man had decided instead of going, is it because he went to Italy? Is it because he, it was Italy and... Two things. First of all, we associate Italy with this terrible outbreak at the beginning and the awful situation, which was absolutely horrible in Italy, in the north of Italy particularly. Therefore, Italy has this kind of toxic feeling. And also, secondly, for those who don't feel that way, they think, God, I'd love to go to Italy. Oh, my God. I would just love two weeks. I mean, who was, I mean, who was even, I mean, when, when he resigned, he said that he had take he had planned two staycations which is an awful word. Yes. It shouldn't exist. And he had gone over to Italy, I think to meet family members or something. And then Imelda Munster, who's Sinn Féin's tourism spokeswoman, and a woman I have nothing against, said um, it's a slap in the face of his own industry, which is on its knees. 
Is it? Is it really, though? Also, I don't... I don't have any great expectation that any of the people who complained about this wouldn't have done exactly the same thing. I give it the opportunity. Well, I'll tell you, if I had the, if I had the folding notes in my back pocket, I would be there tomorrow. I mean, there's, a, there's a Bill Burr joke where he's talking about um, people casting judgment on really famous people who like, do massive amounts of drugs or just have sex with random women. And it, he's talking about how you've never had to deal with temptation on that level. <laughs> and this is a smaller scale of that. I think the average Irish person, if someone went... God, there's a lockdown on, but you want to go to Italy? I think an awful lot of people would go, you know what? Yeah. Or you booked a holiday to Italy and you could lose the money if you don't go. You're like, I'll go. That's just where I think most Irish people fall. Particularly at a time when the country, when Italy had been green listed, it was not considered to be a dangerous place to go. And also, I mean, if nothing else, I mean, truly, and joking aside, I don't know where the man went, but can you imagine a better time to go to Venice? I've and I have had friends who have oh, been to Venice in the last few weeks. Fantastic time to be in Venice. I mean, anywhere around. It's just places Did where you, you can Mark never Wall, go. Uh, the Labour senator coming out about this. No, he he said that the, his actions made a mockery of the idea that we're in this together, and this affair smacks of one rule for us and another rule for them. What's the rule? I sure who is the them? Tourism chiefs. Like, who like, you know, the, the Pe- sort people of, with passports are, people are talking about conspiracy theories like well they don't want you to know and you're like but who's the they like, who is the them what is the, what is the rule for them also I know quite a deal of people who've you know, gone on holidays effectively uh, in the last while so I think it's a general rule for everyone anyway we have learnt the lesson anyway. If you're in in the future, if you're but he he wants Jack Chambers, uh, the Minister of State, to say if they knew he was on holiday when they were launching their tourism st- stimulus recently. Which is you know what I. Okay, he's in labour, so you've got to, you've got to grab anything that's moving that you think you can wring that little bit of blood out of. So I can understand that. But at the same time, stop and go home. Now, the only TD who I actually saw come out in um, in favour of just, like, this isn't, not this isn't a big deal, but, like, what do you want here? Like, why are you calling on him to resign? Was um, the independent TD from Clare, Michael McNamara. Yeah, I saw that. Who, formerly Labour, I think. Yeah. Actually, Michael McNamara recently, uh, I had a chance to talk to him for a while, because he put up a tweet about uh, Uyghur slave labour being used to produce PPE in China. Ah. And uh, basically asked if the Department of Foreign Affairs had been uh, bought out by 30 pieces of silver in uh, slave-produced PPE goods. And that's why we hadn't more strongly uh, spoken out against China. And I had a chance to talk to him. He was a very reasonable guy about it. Yeah, he made the same point. He's, what he said was, what is this? What do you want, lads? When is the finger wagging going to stop? And also, I mean, and, and this maybe is the, the point. It's now gone that 
they want people's livelihoods. They want their jobs. It's not enough for them to have to, to, to come off and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't, I apologize. No. An apology, a bit of a public humiliation, put the ashes on the head, that is not enough now. They want their jobs. In a, in a, as you said, in a country where nobody else, nobody else resigns, nobody in government ever bloody resigns. Oh, Irish politicians have killed people. And not only not resigned, they've refused to apologise for it. They've said that nothing that happened was a mistake. And the idea of resignation, it's not even that they they fought back against it and kept their job. No one even proposed it. The idea an Irish politician would resign for ineptitude harming the country is outlandish and strange and maybe a bit frightening if Irish people were to examine their own soul because then there could be consequences for anyone doing something improper. And we as a culture can't accept that. It's why we don't have a law against perjury that functions. We say we want it, but deep down culturally, we like that law not being there. It's, um, do you know, the, the, closest, the closest we ever got to having a law on perjury, you, 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 you might enjoy this, was... I think it was around the time, say, the War of Independence, the Civil War, that kind of time. Perjury had been made, and maybe it was before as well, so I don't know, maybe it wasn't specifically a political issue. But perjury had been made a reserved sin by the church. And a reserved sin meant that you couldn't just go to a priest to confess that you'd committed perjury, because obviously you're you're taking an oath on the Bible and there it's you're you shall not bear false witness and also it's a sin against the first commandment sin against god so you had to go to the bishop to be absolved and that was taken very seriously by people uh, who were committing perjury and that was as that was as close as we ever got to actually having a functioning perjury law well i mean they told you they were taking it seriously but they were perjurers michael they were no i am told no if this this may be you know there was nice stories that it act that there were certain dioceses where the local bishop was more friendly to the uh, to the republican cause and that um, the authorities were aware of where people would cross over from one diocese and the other and they would very often keep these places under observation as as somebody seeking absolution might go off i think there was a bishop in the Diocese of Kerry. I want to say Dr. Dwyer, but I may be, I may be mistaken on that. He may have been in Limerick. I can't remember. There was, I, I think at the time the bishop in Kerry was noted to be more sympathetic. So they would go into Kerry to get absolution. But as it stands, although I think we hear, we hear rumours, Gary, that there is a proposal to form a law that will make perjury actually a crime in the country. But this has been something I th- I know that myself and and Paddy Manning actually because Paddy started it. Oh, we as a as a policy proposal we were working on with the candidate seven, eight, nine years ago, and we hammered on and talked to people and went. Paddy was on radio and he wrote articles and, you know, you 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 you'd think it's something so basic for us, for us a functioning democracy. Particularly a functioning democracy, which which went through a period of its life, having tribunals all over the gaff, uh, where people were supposed to tell the truth, and if, and then the discovery the problem was when they didn't tell the truth, there was nothing you could do about it. 
that it would have been a very a kind of thing you'd go, gosh, lads, we really we should put that into the law pretty quickly. Particularly when you see the other stuff they managed they've managed to find was actually more pressing to do than that. In the United States, when you go before Congress, the Committee of Congress or Senate, and there's that phrase, under penalty of perjury, that's a phrase which means something in the United States. It's something which puts the wind up them. Do you, I mean, I think one of the problems we have here, Michael, is that every politician who comes out and says, oh, I'm in favour of the perjury bill, someone is just going to go, wonder if they've ever said anything questionable and you do of course you know do you remember that awkwardness with Michal Martin and that diary yeah and the Mahan tribunal and and of course there is another tribunal that Michal is going to be talking to as we speak it's just getting ready that's uh, there's a certain amount of uncomfortableness about that I suppose what what, what was it I think Martin said that he had uh, he'd never met Ono Callaghan the uh, developer with Bertie Ahern and then he went back to the tribunal and they pulled one of Bertie Hearn's diary pages and it just said, like, 3.30, oh, no, Callaghan, M. Martin. <laughs> and Martin had to go, well, I have certainly no recollection of that meeting. No, no, I certainly don't remember that. We, we, may, be, we may be asking for a degree of coherence and consistency in, a, in this little country which is beyond us. I mean, I don't know, did you see the story, not to always go back to COVID, but one of my favourite COVID stories at the moment is there's a proposal that pub hours, I'm reading at the headline from The Independent here, pub, pub hours may be extended in bid to halt COVID house parties and spread of virus. So the the new big idea, Gary, to combat the virus spreading is to have longer hours in the pub. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm not saying it's wrong or right. I'm just, I'm a little bit left. What? This is, you know, that old rhyme children was it? There wasn't a woman who swallowed a fly, wriggled inside her. She thought she'd die. Well, she swallowed a spider to go after the fly and then she swallowed a bird to go after the spider. I mean, it feels a little bit like after we've opened the pubs, I mean, how how late are we going to have to open them to combat house parties? I mean, there, there is there is a obviously a fascinating story there. But, Michael, I, I, do, I do want to just mention one more thing on the tribunal. Oh, yes, go on. Do you remember that... Um, Tom Gilmartin, who is a Sligo-born developer. I remember Tom, yes. He he said that um, he had been told by Ono Callaghan that Ono Callaghan had paid a five-figure sum to Michal Martin. Right. And the Mahan Tribunal you know, kind of got to the end and everyone said, well, you know, it didn't, it was never able to substantiate that. Yes. But the Mahan Tribunal and this is the Irish Times talking about it, said that it didn't seek to establish the truth of every piece of information provided by <laughs> Mr. Gilmartin, as that would have resulted in enormously prolonged inquiries. Um, Michael Martin, for his, uh, for his, you know, I was going to say for his sins, but that might leave me in legal trouble, for his, uh, his response, yeah. said it was an outrageous lie 
But it does also remind me of that time when, was it Ireland AM Martin went on? And he was expecting this really happy, fun interview because it's morning TV and everyone is great. Yeah. And they're like, um, so can you explain to us how this money ended up in your wife's account? And it's one of the few times I've ever seen Michal Martin with nothing to say. <laughs> Just this, oh, Alex. A sense of disappointment. Ah, oh, lads, is it going to be like that? <laughs> I'm being ambushed on a couch <laughs> on Ireland FM or Ireland AM. I haven't even had me breakfast. Couldn't you just, couldn't you have just let it go? But anyway, yeah, so that's the Taoiseach. Yes, for the time being. Never any wrongdoing proved. No, no. Well, proven even. Uh, although that money did, was definitely in his wife's account. It was just... Resting. Presum- yeah, presumably it was, just a father Ted moment. Yeah. Anyway, so we, we just quick, very quickly going back to the pubs, I was wondering... Oh, yes, yes. I was wondering... I, I, think, I, think, I think the EBI needs a position on this, of no no crisis should go to waste, Martin. And Michael, even. Yes. You you not being Michael Martin. And it should be that pubs, in order to combat COVID, should be allowed to have 24-hour opening periods. Right, that's interesting mm-hmm. now. Yeah, I, I think that would space out the drinking and by not having a set time to go home, peop- the people on the street would be staggered. They would st- they literally st- yeah, and absolutely, yes, staggering. I'm wondering here, you all might help this, if we could introduce some kind of a self-service system you know, for the wee hours where you, you could... Maybe with a card or or or, or, or a card system only, and you 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 put your glass under it, and so you don't actually have to be served. You use your own glass. You don't have to use other glasses. You keep your you keep your own glass, and uh, as long as you stay within your corralled area, you you're okay. And they could stay open. To, why would you go to a? Why would you indeed go to a house party? And drink Budweiser at less than a euro a bottle when you could go to a pub and pay five or six euro for a bottle of beer. I mean, everybody knows. It's far more fun spending six times the money, but in a social and convivial atmosphere of the Irish pub. But I think 24 hours, yeah, why not? But they wouldn't all have to do 24 hours, would they? Well, I mean, you wouldn't have to do it. I mean, we wouldn't regulate that you have to remain open for 24 hours. I just think the choice should be there. And would they have to provide food? I mean, no. Let's be honest. That was always just entirely arbitrary because the Irish state didn't want to have to go, well, you know, you just, you know, you can only have so many people on the premises uh, and instead just put in this bizarre food requirement that was obviously also going to be messed with immediately while also managing to shut down a lot of the pubs who would have been most responsible and didn't want to get around the legislation through some dubious scheme which if anything would seem to make the entire thing less safe because a lot of the people who are most reasonable won't open um, I, I, there's, a, there's a, a, a government source quoted in the Indo article on this which I think is fantastic and absolutely honest and truthful. We don't want people spending hours in restaurants and gastropubs late into the night. 
At the same time, we do not want to displace people from these settings to house parties and after parties. It's not an exact science. Well, I think I'm, I'm willing to, to accept that that is true. This is indeed not an exact science. I think it's the kind of science where they haven't a fucking clue what they're doing. But they're desperately thinking, what, 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 what can we do now? I also love the fact that pubs that don't serve food are called wet pubs. <laughs> you know? As opposed to dry pubs. I, wet. It's like in, you know, in those CIA thrillers. A wet team is the team that goes in and kills all the people. It's wet because of the blood. So wet pub. I imagine. It conjures up all sorts of unfortunate images, I think, for me anyway. They let you just get drunk enough that social distancing breaks down, and they break in the door, and you're just shot. Well, yes, people that are are caught involved in activities like, you know, that. I think the fundamental fear, as I've said before, is that we will all just go lose the run of ourselves completely and just start licking each other. I think that you know people found doing that kind of thing will be. Sorry, I'm just I'm just reading the transcript of uh, Mial Martin on Ireland AM. <laughs> God, talk about dog with a bone. It's just, it's very funny. It's it's kind of Trumpian. He's like, well, I, I gave them receipts that I didn't even, you know, I didn't even have to have. And they're like, yeah, but how did the money end up in your wife's account? The donation was legitimate, but why was it in your wife's account? And he's like, well, and uh, yeah, he's like, I, I think it's very, very unfair that you'd bring this up to me because I gave a very comprehensive uh Account to the tribunal. Indeed. Also the phrase, we showed the receipts. We didn't have the full receipts, but we showed the receipts. It's just a wonderfully finophile statement. We didn't have to, but we did. No, no, we didn't have the full receipts, but we showed the receipts. Yeah, we showed them. I can't remember what the fellow was who showed them to now. Young guy, nice chap. Um, name escapes me now, but we definitely showed them. It's it, it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful stuff. And he also he he cautions them that you know when you take these things out in in isolation, it creates an innuendo. An innuendo. And creates an issue where there was none before, Michael. Well, that's very often what happens when you get these tribunals being set up by bad-minded people asking all sorts of questions about things that nobody had been asking questions about. Here's his, uh, here's his response to when they, they ask him about the meeting between Bertie Ahern and Owen O'Callaghan, the developer. Because he had said that he hadn't met with them because he would remember that. And then when the diary was put to him, he said, well, I, can, I can't remember that meeting. Uh, so I don't think it happened. And they say, well, what about it? It's, it's in the diary. And his response is, but it wasn't, you see. Even the tribunal itself didn't seem to be going into pause. I don't want to be going into this because it's based on the report. Pause. Didn't seem to be too clear about it. Pause. Dry mouth. Never any indication in advance that was going to be raised. Paused. I certainly didn't. Trails off. <laughs> well, it's... Um... You can like you can see the gears kind of going. <laughs> What's the appropriate response? It's just the power of someone sitting there from the media and going, "Ah, but are you sure you can't remember now? Not even are you sure lie. it didn't happen? Just a little bit. 
Like, we're not saying it did happen, but are you sure it didn't and you just forgot? <laughs> ah, go on now, Michael. No. Go on. And how did that money end up in your wife's account? Ah, oh, sure. And he, he just says it left very quickly. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not what we asked you. Why did it end up there? Well, banks, Gary, you know, banks will do all. I mean, you can't resp- be responsible. They trans- there are going to be mistakes made. Errors will be happening. Nobody's fault. It's not. That's you know, why Hearn didn't have an account. Absolutely. You can't have any problems with accounts if there are no accounts. Yeah. And Charlie had accounts, but there's never any money in them. And Ahern knew that because he was signing off on a lot of them. I I love the idea of Ahern going before the tribunal for the first time and them saying, well, you know, we'll look at the evidence available from the accounts. And Ahern going, well, I'm afraid I don't actually have a bank account. Yeah, can you imagine? Sir, sorry, you have a house. You bought a house. How do you not have a bank account? Well, you know, I just don't. There's no law says you have to. <laughs> no, you, I assume you would think because of the salary I'm on. In fact, I bought many expensive things that there would be a house or some way for me to draw credit. The fact, but no, there's not. Me, there's not. Having been an, an accountant, Minister for Finance and Taoiseach, a lot of people would think you'd have a bank account. I mean, having, having been the treasurer of Fianna Fáil during the hockey years... You'd think this would be a man who understood a lot about bank accounts. Mm. Well, I think there was an understanding about checks and signing checks. and Maybe not checks and balances, but certainly checks. That that was something you had to do and just you got on with it and you did it. You know, don't get into pettifogging detail. Anyway... Anyway, no one resigned over that. Nothing improper was ever shown to have happened. And uh, it's just a funny little moment in Irish political history that I will not let rest for the next couple of years while Martin is there. Anyway, just before we go, there was just one little... It's a a return to a a story, not a story so much as an attitude or a behaviour that we have talked about before. And it's, it's one that I find just both puzzling and annoying. Leo Varadkar, on Tarnishta, decided to tweet uh, after the announcement that Joe Biden had chosen Kamala Harris to be his running mate for VP. And he tweeted thusly, Good luck, Joe. Delighted you chose the brilliant Kamala Harris as your running mate, a true trailblazer half Indian and committed to justice, and you're both Finnegans. I know you'll both be friends of Ireland. You know, this is a thing they've been doing. They've been doing it since Trump started to look like he might win the Republican nomination. They did it after he got the nomination, but before he was elected president. And they've kept on doing it because it's just this thing. Orange man, bad. I know since Kennedy, we have this thing in Ireland that Democrats good, Republicans bad. Democrats Irish, Republicans not Irish. Even though I think most of the time in the last 20, 30 years, roughly 50% of Irish Americans voted Republican. Ronald Reagan was 
uh, as much an Irish president as John F. Kennedy was and got lots and lots of that. What they call the, the, a lot of those Reagan Democrats were the, were, were Irish Americans. But listen, Republicans bad, Orange Man very very bad indeed. He, it's just part of the culture. But you know, if everything they believe about Donald Trump to be true is true, if he is this incredibly egomaniacal, thin-skinned, vindictive unpredictable dangerous man why would you say that why would you as tarnished and who knows maybe again in the future Taoiseach say that you are actually basically you're backing one party against another party to win an election in a foreign country I mean we don't do this about do we do this about anybody else? Is there any other country in the world where the Tanishta or the leader of the Tanishta, the leader of Fine Gael, I'm, you know, Sinn Féin or Democratic Left, I'm sure, do their own thing, or this people for profit, obviously have their fans, their, you know, their fans of people like Maduro and Chavez and Castro and Mao and these people. But otherwise, do we get involved in the UK or in Germany or Japan? Why is this a good idea? Well, <laughs> why is this we, not this, really, this a really bad idea? This is a conversation we had many times when Leo was the shock, where something would happen and Leo would say something, and the only possible response would be, "Why is he saying this?" He did this during. It's not. Bre- There's no benefit to this. He did this in during Brexit all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were doing a deal. Let me tell you, we've given them absolutely nothing. And you go, well, Leo, the British Parliament votes on this in 30 hours. So maybe wait 30 hours to say you've given them nothing. Yeah, particularly when they're going to vote on this on the basis that they've got something and we want them to vote on it in a certain way so this thing actually gets resolved and you coming out and saying we've got they've got nothing out of it is actually going to make it very hard for this to go through so that's a really stupid thing for you to say so why the hell are you having why are you commenting on it in the first place i mean what percentage of our fdi is american I can, rather a lot a lot of it and even this is, trump has constantly talked about repatriating american industry to the united states and there are a couple of areas like pharmaceuticals that the american administration the trump administration is very focused on and, and we, we are need ve- to poke them about and pharmaceuticals is a huge element of our RFD. When you look at income from capital gains taxes, income taxes, pharmaceuticals is massive. And they are, this is one of the areas of particular interest to this administration. Why would you alienate them? I mean, particularly given that if Donald Trump wins again, there's a non-zero percent chance that Leo, when he gets there for next year's St. Patrick's Day event, will walk in to a blown-up version of his own tweet thanking Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Donald Trump just pointing at it. I'm not saying it's likely. 
I'm just saying it could happen. You know, if we flip it, it's unlikely, but it flip it. How happy would Leo be if the if a prominent politician in another, in another another jurisdiction during an election was to come out and to make us wonderful positive noises about uh, Michal Martin or about uh, Mary Lou Macdonald? I think we he would send out a strongly worded video talking about self determination and the fact that it will it is the uh, duty of the Irish people to select the next leader. And it is not the job of anyone from that country to do so. I can nearly see the video. But I don't know. Of course, he is so wrapped up in his privilege. His ma- Where he's under a bit of, of, I think he's under a bit of pressure now because he, he came out and sent out a tweet based on uh, something Barry Ward ran into. So Ward was in the Senate and basically one of the Sinn Feiners said that as a white middle-class man, he couldn't understand how uh, people in more marginalised identities dealt with and saw the law. Yeah. And he said, look, I've, I've worked in the law for many years working with these people. I understand how they see it. But Ward put up a tweet basically saying it was disappointing that Sinn Féin were pushing that sort of identitarian line. Yes. And Leo put up a tweet saying, if you're white, male, or even worse, working class, Sinn Féin doesn't want you. So much for an Ireland of equals. Currently, there are 2.6 thousand replies to that tweet, but also 3.5 thousand likes. But that was like, that was the 12th. That was four days ago. Mm -hmm. But 13 hours ago, he came back and said, you know, just to clarify, I was highlighting the fact that Sinn Féin dismissed his views because of his background no one should be discriminated against, blah, blah, blah. You don't tend to come back four days later to a tweet to clarify it unless it's actually an object of concern to you. And it has really pissed some people off. I tell you, the only thing that struck me about the tweet that was rather rich coming from Leo, considering that Leo has been part of that cohort in Fine Gael, which has been pushing precisely the, the identitarian quota system. Uh, on the on the country, when particularly when it comes to gender, but that's just a but in conversations, it, looking at other ways to diversify the body politic to make it look more like the country. Now, precisely what that would look like, I don't know, but they never seem. Listen, I, I, I honest to God, I'm just it's so tedious. It's not worth even getting into it. Is it Miriam O'Callaghan was one of Enda Kenny's speechwriters, wasn't she? She's she turns up below it and she's saying, you know, this is the sort of thing you'd expect to see from a pitiful fringe far right lot, not the tarnished of a young modern republic. What is power in such hands? What is far right about it? I mean, to me, I mean, the the observation on the basis of the response, uh, the response to the comment, isn't that far off. I think it's rich and slightly hypocritical coming from him. Well, I mean, here's the thing. If you believe that you can never know the lived experiences or judge the lived experiences of people of different race or class or sexual uh, sexuality or sex, then why are all these white people telling this gay Indian man 
that he's wrong to talk about identity. Oh, well, yeah. I don't know his lived experience that have led him to this place. Absolutely. I mean, it seems, if you really believe what you're saying, Leo should get pretty much a free pass on all of this. And a Northsider, too. And a Northsider, but I say that as another Northsider. You know, can't be easy. Well, I had many struggles, Michael. I know, I know. But you're brave and you don't like to talk about him, and we appreciate that. Yes, like I, whenever I talk to you, Michael, I, I feel the appreciation for you. Um, empathy is my middle name. In between sympathy and compassion. I have a very long name. Anyway, I think we've beaten up on, on them all enough. Well, never enough, but for the time, enough for the listener to have got to the point where they might start liking them again. So we'll draw away a veil over it for the time being. We shall return on Wednesday. Yes, we will. I'm sure we'll talk more about uh, white male privilege. I love the idea of white male privilege in Ireland, Michael. I'd love some. Reginald D. Hunter. Oh, yeah, I love Reginald. He once said that Ireland is like where they make white people. <laughs> and so whenever someone comes out like, well, you've got white male privilege. Like, well, I grew up in rural Ireland. I didn't see a black person until I was about 20. So you can't really have racial privilege in an incredibly homogenous country. So historically, that wasn't really a thing because there were only really white people. Yeah, there was obviously... There were always, and there actually have been quite historically important, uh, ethnic minority communities in Ireland quite a long time, including black, uh, Irish, but in, in incredibly small numbers. In the majority of the country, there were none. So you need an opposition to have a racial privilege, and there were none. I think that if you're talking about what people of colour in Ireland did, the phrase that I, that I always enjoyed it was... Thomas Sowell describing his uh, experience of growing up in the part of, I think it was North Carolina where he was from. He said that basically for him as a child, white people were hypothetical. And I think that's a, that's a, a great phrase. And I think certainly for somebody of my age generation, for most of the time, black people were hypothetical. You saw them, they, you saw them on television, but after that it was... I I just I love I I love it, Michael. I love people using those American concepts in Ireland without any adopting them. I love seeing very well-to-do middle-class women talk about male privilege, white male privilege, and you sit there and go, "You're a white middle-class woman. What? what how different are you?" Things, oh, things, things have been tough since you left Loretto on the green and got your way through Trinity. Oh, has the Shelburne stopped its afternoon teas? <laughs> no, no. And I think on that note, we should run for the hills before Gary gets us in too much trouble. Anyway, enjoy your Sunday and we shall be back, hail and hearty, hopefully, like all of you, on Wednesday with more news from the highways and byways of Ireland. Bye-bye. All the best.